0: Today, we'll be discussing case number 34, a 31-year-old female with a systolic heart murmur. A 31-year-old female comes to your office to establish care. She has not seen a physician on a regular basis since her teenage years when she was under the care of her pediatrician. She denies chronic medical problems and has no previous hospitalizations or surgeries. Both of her parents are healthy without known medical conditions She takes no medications, she denies tobacco or illicit drug use, but drinks two to three drinks per weekend night and a glass of wine one or two evenings per week. She tries to stay active when she can and runs one to two miles once or twice a week. Review of Systems is positive for mild fatigue for the past year and occasional chest pain described as sharp, non-exertional, non-positional, and not associated with eating. The pain lasts between 5 and 15 seconds and is sometimes associated with feelings of anxiousness and hyperventilation. She denies associated shortness of breath, dizziness, or sweating. These episodes occur once a month or less. She also admits to occasional palpitations described as her heart skipping a beat that are not associated with chest pain, lightheadedness, syncope, or near syncope. This occurs mostly in night, when lying down to go to sleep. She has not been previously evaluated for any of these symptoms. The physical exam reveals a healthy appearing young female of normal body habitus with normal vital signs and a body mass index of 21 kilograms per meter squared. The rest of the physical exam is normal, with the exception of a mid-systolic click that occurs just prior to a non-radiating grade 2 systolic murmur heard best over the apex. Her point of maximal impulse, PMI, is non-palpable. The patient doesn't recall ever having been told that she has a heart murmur. So what is your differential diagnosis of a systolic heart murmur? What is the most likely diagnosis in this patient? Systolic heart murmurs are common in practice and often benign, unlike diastolic murmurs, which are usually associated with some form of pathology. In young adults, although systolic murmurs are heard in 5 to 52 percent of patients, the echocardiogram is normal in 86 to 100 percent. This number is even higher in pregnant women referred for systolic murmurs, suggesting that echocardiograms are overutilized in this population. The subject of murmurs is further complicated by the fact that general internists are quite weak at identifying the cause of murmurs. In a 1997 JAMA study of 314 internal medicine and family practice residents, only 20% were able to correctly identify abnormal heart sounds from recordings. In another paper in JAMA from the Rational Clinical Exam Series, the precision of examining a grade 2 or louder murmur in the clinical setting is poor, with a kappa statistic of only 0.30. This includes cardiologists. Before discussing the heart murmurs that are caused by valvular and structural heart disease, it is worth noting that blood viscosity and velocity are also factors in producing a murmur. Don't forget to think about non-cardiac issues, such as anemia and thyrotoxicosis, when you hear abnormal systolic heart sounds. It's also worth noting that a thorough history is the first and most important step in assessing a murmur. A systolic murmur in a 26-year-old female with anemia and heavy menstrual periods has different implications than one in a 46-year-old male with active intravenous drug use, fevers, and weight loss. In general, pathologic murmurs are produced from the following valvular and structural abnormalities. Aortic stenosis, mitral regurgitation, including due to mitral valve prolapse, and tricuspid regurgitation, and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or HCM. Aortic stenosis is most likely to occur in older patients with calcification of the aortic valve, but can also occur in younger patients with bicuspid aortic valves. It is loudest over the aortic valve area, located over the second intercostal space, just to the right of the sternum. It can radiate to the right carotid artery and is not associated with a click. Your patient's clinical history and murmur do not fit with aortic stenosis. Tricuspid regurgitation occurs most often as a result of pulmonary pathology. However, it can rarely occur as a primary valvular problem, as when it occurs with Epstein's anomaly. Tricuspid regurgitation is loudest over the tricuspid valve area located over the left lower sternal border and is not associated with the click. Again, your patient's clinical history and murmur do not fit. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or HCM is a heterogeneous condition of concern in a young patient as it can potentially be fatal. The vast majority of patients though are either asymptomatic or have non-specific symptoms like your patient. The condition is caused most commonly by an inherited mutation in the heart muscle. The systolic murmur of HCM especially when there is sub-aortic hypertrophy, is a harsh crescendo-decrescendo murmur that is best heard over the apex located at the fifth or sixth intercostal space in the midclavicular line. It radiates to the left lower sternal border and is not associated with the click. Often, a strong apical impulse can be palpated as well, signifying a hypertrophy left ventricle. Mitral regurgitation, is generally a hollow murmur. However, when it occurs as a result of mitral valve prolapse, is a late systolic murmur heard loudest over the apex occurring after a mid-systolic click. The click is a distinct sound that happens as a result of the chordae tendinae suddenly tensing after the mitral valve prolapses into the left atrium. Your patient has a distinct mid-systolic click that none of the other valvular conditions have. In the same rational clinical exam series article from JAMA, this systolic click with or without a murmur is sufficient to make a diagnosis of mitral valve prolapse. As we shall see soon, the rest of your patient's clinical picture is consistent with mitral valve prolapse as well. Basic science pearl here at this point, mainly for step one, the kappa statistic or kappa coefficient is a value that measures the agreement between observers and is useful in evaluating physical exam findings or diagnostic test interpretations. A kappa of 1 indicates perfect agreement, whereas a kappa of 0 indicates no agreement or that the agreement is due to chance. A clinical pearl here, mainly for step 2 and 3, characteristics of benign murmurs that do not require further workup include low intensity, such as grade 1 or 2, absence of radiation, early systolic timing, normal jugular venous pressure and carotid impulses, absence of cardiac symptoms, and normal electrocardiogram and chest radiograph. So what is MVP? MVP, or mitral valve prolapse, is defined as a greater than 2 millimeter ballooning of one or both of the mitral valve leaflets into the left atrium during systole, with or without associated mitral regurgitation. Most patients with MVP have associated MR, or mitral regurgitation. MVP is the most common cause of chronic primary MR, though the majority of these patients have only mild or trace MR of little clinical significance. In fact, MVP is asymptomatic in most patients and is found during routine exam or on an echocardiogram performed for another reason. The most common etiology for the condition is idiopathic and due to thickening of one of the layers of the mitral valve. However, familial cases of MVP are a well-described phenomenon. Additionally, there are a number of conditions that cause secondary MVP, and these are either from connective tissue diseases affecting the valve leaflets, such as Ehlers-Danlos and Marfan syndromes, or disruptions in the papillary muscles or chordae tendineae which can occur in ischemic heart disease and cardiomyopathy. The main physical exam finding of MVP is a mid-systolic click followed by a late-systolic murmur if mitral regurgitation is present. As noted previously, the click is generated by sudden tensing of the chordae as the mitral valve leaflets billow up into the left atrium. Most patients with this condition have a normal life expectancy Though approximately 5 to 10% have a course of progressive mitral regurgitation, leading to numerous complications. A clinical pearl here, mainly for step 3, untreated severe MR results in a number of serious complications. Left ventricular dilatation and dysfunction develop as a result of the continuously increased blood volume delivered to the ventricle during diastole. This eventually leads to left-sided heart failure And pulmonary hypertension as a result of congested pulmonary vasculature. The left atrium dilates as well, making patients more prone to atrial arrhythmias such as atrial fibrillation and flutter. Both atrial fibrillation and the increased turbulence surrounding the mitral valve are major risk factors for intracardiac thrombi that can embolize to cause stroke and other complications. What is dynamic auscultation and how can it be used to help diagnose systolic murmurs? Dynamic auscultation refers to the change in murmur intensity the murmur becomes either louder or softer with certain changes in position and physical exam maneuvers. This change in intensity can help increase accuracy when trying to determine the cause of a murmur. It's important to note that no single maneuver is 100% accurate in diagnosing the cause of a systolic murmur. In general, systolic murmurs increase in intensity when there is more blood in the heart and decrease in intensity when there is less blood. Basically, more blood equals more flow equals louder systolic murmur, and vice versa. The physical exam maneuvers that cause an increased amount of blood in the heart include moving the patient from a standing to a squatting position, or simply known as squatting, laying a patient flat, or performing a passive leg raise. The examiner raises a recumbent patient's legs to a 45 degree angle. All of these maneuvers increase venous return to the heart. Allow at least 30 to 45 seconds after the change in position before assessing whether there is a change in the murmur's intensity. Inspiration, which causes a decrease in intrathoracic pressure, draws blood into the heart, thereby increasing the intensity of a systolic murmur. Maneuvers that decrease the amount of blood in the heart are having the patient stand from a seated position At least 600 milliliters of blood are left pooled in the veins and therefore not returned to the patient, and instructing the patient to perform a valsalva, which increases thoracic pressure. Expiration also causes an increase in thoracic pressure, which not only decreases venous return, but forces blood out of the heart. Expiration will therefore decrease the intensity of a systolic murmur. So the case mentions that you decide to use dynamic auscultation to assess your patient. You perform a passive leg raise and are surprised to hear that her murmur actually decreases in intensity. Next, you have her stand after being seated for a few minutes, and you're surprised to hear that her murmur actually increases in intensity. So if systolic murmurs are supposed to increase with increased amount of blood in the heart and vice versa, why are you finding that the opposite is occurring in your patient? MVP with MR does not follow the general rules for dynamic auscultation of systolic murmurs. The physical exam maneuvers that increase and decrease the amount of blood in the heart will actually have the opposite effect compared to most systolic murmurs. Maneuvers that increase the amount of blood in the heart, such as squatting, laying flat, passive leg raise, decrease the murmur of mitral valve prolapse with MR. Why? because more blood in the heart stretches the left ventricle which causes more tension on the chordae. This condition of unusually tense chordae does not allow the mitral valve to prolapse as much into the left atrium during systole, therefore less blood flows backward across the mitral valve during systole. More blood in the heart equals less prolapse equals less MR which equals a softer murmur and a later click. Maneuvers that decrease the amount of blood in the heart, such as standing or valsalva, will actually increase the murmur of mitral valve prolapse with MR. Why? Less blood in the heart leaves the left ventricle relatively collapsed, which results in slack chordae tendinae. Slack chordae allow the leaflets to billow up quicker and more forcefully, creating a large aperture for a regurgitant jet. Less blood in the heart, equals more prolapse, equals more MR, equals a louder and longer murmur and an earlier click. Another maneuver that affects the murmur of MVP is hand grip. Asking your patient to make tight fists for approximately 30 seconds increases systemic vascular resistance and therefore afterload. Inflating blood pressure cuffs on a patient's arms will have the same effect. In a patient with MVP and MR, Increased afterload creates an elevation in pressure in the left ventricle during systole that is transmitted backward to the mitral valve apparatus, causing an earlier and more forceful prolapse. Again, more prolapse equals more MR equals a louder and longer murmur and an earlier click. You may think that using vasodilator therapy to reduce afterload in an MVP patient would be beneficial. However, it has the opposite effect, where it reduces the LV cavity size and leads to a more stretching of the chordae and thus worsened MVP. A clinical pearl here at this point, mainly for step 2 and 3, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or HCM with subaortic stenosis is the only other murmur that does not follow the rules of dynamic auscultation of systolic murmurs more blood in the heart will decrease the intensity of the murmur and vice versa. The only difference between MVP with MR and HCM is that hand grip will decrease the intensity of the murmur in HCM, whereas it increases the intensity of the murmur in MVP with MR. The case then goes on to say that you inform your patient that you've heard a heart murmur that sounds like the benign condition MVP. You want to take the rest of a review of systems seriously and decide to perform a basic workup for fatigue, including a complete blood count, CBC, to evaluate for anemia, a thyroid stimulating hormone, TSH test, to evaluate for thyroid disease, a human immunodeficiency virus, HIV test, a comprehensive metabolic panel, CMP, to evaluate for liver and metabolic abnormalities, and a fasting blood sugar to evaluate for diabetes. You also order an ECG, given her murmur and of palpitations. The labs return in a week and are completely normal. You interpret the ECG as normal sinus rhythm with a pulse rate of 62 beats per minute, no ST or T wave changes, normal intervals, and no evidence of chamber enlargement. Given that you are confident that your patient's murmur is MVP, do you even have to order an echocardiogram? Although your patient does not have any very concerning symptoms and has a normal ECG with normal intervals, the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, ACC AHA, still recommends obtaining an echocardiogram on all patients with suspected MVP, even if they are asymptomatic. The purpose of the echocardiogram is to confirm the diagnosis, establish a baseline, and evaluate for the presence of factors I would suggest a course of disease that isn't typical and benign. Specifically, the echocardiogram is performed to assess the thickness of the mitral valve leaflets, the degree of MR, and the left atrial and ventricular morphology and function. The case then elaborates that your patient's echocardiogram reveals 3 mm prolapse of both mitral leaflets during systole, trace MR, thickening of both leaflets, which also measured 3 mm, a left ventricular ejection fraction of 65% with the normal left atrial and left ventricular morphology and a pulmonary artery systolic pressure of 20 millimeters mercury. So here, the diagnosis is established of mitral valve prolapse. What follow up is recommended for her echocardiogram findings? Does she ever need another one? Your patient's echocardiogram findings predict a benign course of disease. She has mitral prolapse based on the ballooning of the mitral leaflets into the left atrium during systole. The echocardiogram criteria for MVP includes a 2 millimeter or greater billowing of the mitral valves into the atrium during systole. She has only trace MR and a normal left ventricular function and pulmonary artery systolic pressure. For patients with no trace or mild MR, no follow-up echocardiogram is required if she remains asymptomatic. The ACC AHA recommends clinical follow-up every three to five years for patients like yours. A repeat echocardiogram should be obtained only if she has a change in symptoms that suggests worsening MR or left ventricular dysfunction. A clinical pearl here mainly for step two and three, moderate to severe MR and mitral valve leaflets measuring more than five millimeters are predictive of future complications from MVP. Patients with these findings require closer monitoring clinically, either every 6 months or every 12 months, depending on the severity of the regurgitation. Your patient is very concerned that she has an abnormal heart and is having chest pain and occasional palpitations. What do you tell her about her diagnosis and what she can do to help her symptoms? When a patient with MVP presents with nonspecific symptoms such as atypical chest pain, palpitations, anxiety, numbness and tingling, or fatigue, This is known as MVP syndrome. It is a controversial diagnosis in that there is a questionable link between these symptoms and MVP. Nevertheless, patients are often concerned when they have the above symptoms, especially in the setting of having a heart murmur. The first step in recommending a treatment plan for these sometimes vague symptoms is working them up as you would for someone without MVP. Your patient who has a normal echocardiogram Without evidence of structural heart disease other than the MVP, is predicted to have a benign course with a normal life expectancy and a low yearly rate of complications, approximately 2% per year, non cumulative. Her chest pain is very atypical for ischemic chest pain, as is her personal and family history, and her ECG demonstrates no evidence of prior myocardial infarction. Her palpitations are very nonspecific and are not associated with any concerning signs. Her ECG has a normal rhythm and intervals. Patients with MVP without severe MR and no structural heart disease have a rate of arrhythmia similar to those without MVP. The most common cause of palpitations being premature atrial or ventricular beats, and should be worked up in the same way. That is, a Holter event monitor should be obtained after an ECG if there are associated symptoms such as dizziness, lightheadedness, shortness of breath, syncope, or near syncope or the palpitations are sustained. Your patient's palpitations occur only at night when there is more opportunity to focus on them. And the skipped beat description is typical of premature atrial or ventricular beats. There are no significant electrolyte abnormalities to suggest a cause for another arrhythmia. Her fatigue is also nonspecific and has been thoroughly evaluated with labs. The primary treatment recommendation in this case is reassurance. Your patient is at low risk for any serious pathology. Avoidance of caffeine and alcohol, stress management, proper sleep hygiene, and aerobic exercise can help all of our symptoms as well. A clinical pearl here, mainly for step two and three. For patients with mitral valve prolapse syndrome who have persistent symptoms, such as chest pain, anxiety, palpitations, despite lifestyle modification, the treatment of choice is a beta blocker. Your patient returns to your office in several months with a letter from her dentist. She's having her wisdom teeth removed, and the dentist wants to know if she should receive antibiotic prophylaxis prior to the procedure. Does your patient need antibiotic prophylaxis before going for dental procedures? For decades, MVP was considered a strong risk factor for infective endocarditis and required prophylaxis for dental or other invasive procedures. The most recent ACC AHA guidelines, however, No longer recommend infective endocarditis prophylaxis for patients with MVP. Instead, the guidelines recommend infective endocarditis prophylaxis only for those patients at highest risk for complications of infective endocarditis. This group includes patients with prosthetic heart valves, a history of infective endocarditis, cyanotic heart disease, either repaired or unrepaired, or valvular disease in the setting of a cardiac transplant. The main rationale behind this revision is that infective endocarditis is more likely to occur with the bacteremia that occurs on a daily basis, either randomly or from activities like brushing your teeth, than from bacteremia from dental or invasive procedures. Furthermore, prophylaxis only prevents an exceptionally small number of people from getting infective endocarditis, and the risk of adverse effects from antibiotics has been shown to exceed the risk of infective endocarditis. The guidelines have also changed in that infective endocarditis prophylaxis is now recommended only for dental procedures involving manipulation of the gums or involving the periapical region of the tooth, such as the root, and no longer for gastrointestinal or genitourinary procedures, unless there is another reason for antibiotics, such as ongoing infection. A clinical pearl inserted here for step two and three states that for those at highest risk of endocarditis from a dental procedure, the prophylactic antibiotic of choice is amoxicillin, 2 grams orally, 30 to 60 minutes prior to the procedure. For those allergic to penicillin, alternatives include cephalexin, 2 grams, only if there is no history of anaphylaxis to penicillin, clindamycin, 600 milligrams, or azithromycin, 500 milligrams. This brings us to the end of the case, and we'll move on to the Beyond the Pearl section. The first one states the most common ECG abnormality in patients with MVP is ST or T wave depression or T wave inversions in the inferior leads. This can lead to false positives on exercise ECG stress testing. The second pearl states that in general for patients with MVP with severe MR, the treatment of choice is mitral valve repair, not replacement. The third pearl indicates that given the association of MVP with connective tissue disorders, Consider MVP in patients with musculoskeletal abnormalities such as pectus excavatum and scoliosis. The fourth pearl states that patients with depressed ejection fraction as a result of severe MR are treated with beta blockers, angiotensin-converting enzyme or ACE inhibitors, and loop diuretics for pulmonary congestion. This is the same as the treatment of depressed ejection fraction without MR. The fifth pearl states that for patients with MVP who develop sudden acute worsening of MR with resulting heart failure symptoms suspect ruptured chordae tendineae. The next pearl states that pregnant women with MVP and either no trace or mild MR do not require any special interventions during pregnancy. Those with severe MR should have repair prior to pregnancy Those with severe MR and left ventricle ejection fraction less than 30% or with pulmonary hypertension should be counseled to avoid getting pregnant. And the last pearl states that the absence of a mitral area or holosystolic murmur significantly reduces the probability of having MR, except in the setting of acute myocardial infarction. That brings us to the end of the case. Uh, Thank you all for your attention, and I hope you were able to learn something. My name is Ravi Rao, and this case was edited in part by Dr. Prabhadeep Sethi. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, Vita brevis.